Good morning. Like John said, my name is Sammy Rhodes, and I'm the uh, RUF campus minister at USC. Uh, I've been doing that for about, this is going on year seven, and uh, really glad to be with you guys here this morning. Uh, what I want to preach about or, or talk about this morning is actually Psalm 42. Uh, it's, a, it's a heavy psalm. It's a psalm for those of us who come this morning maybe feeling a little bit sad, or a little bit depressed, a little bit anxious. And it's, a, it's what's called a lament psalm, so it's trying to give shape and voice to what do we do with those sad, anxious, depressed emotions. So I'm going to read it for us, <clears throat> Psalm 42. And after I read it, uh, I do want to take a moment and just pray for what's happening in, in Charlottesville, I think in, in light of thinking about sadness and suffering. We're, let's read this psalm first, and I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll dive in. Psalm 42. It's a psalm of the sons of Korah. <clears throat> As a deer pants for flowing streams... So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we thank you for your word that gives uh, shape and voice to these feelings. And Lord, we uh, can't read this psalm and not think about what's happening um, just a really few hours away in Charlottesville, Virginia, where we pray for our brothers and sisters there who are experiencing and living under the evil and the oppression of white supremacy. And Lord, would you meet them this morning, especially those who have been hurt, those families who have lost loved ones. Would you, O oh Lord, um, be near to them? Would you remind them that you are not just the Savior, but you are the King who will see justice done? And so, Lord, we pray that even in the midst of unspeakable despair and unspeakable anger and unspeakable injustice and unspeakable racism, Lord, that you would meet your people and Lord, we pray for those who are marching, those who are um, taking out this evil. Lord, would you call them to repentance? Would you call them by the gospel to turn from their sin and to fall upon you, Lord Jesus, and plead for mercy? So Lord, we look to you this morning as the only God who knows what to do with our suffering and sadness. And the only God who we have any hope that justice one day will roll down. So Lord, we pray for these things. We pray for ourselves this morning. We pray that for those of us, especially in this room, who, who are feeling heavy with sadness, with depression, with anxiety, would you meet us in this place? And would you give us the hope of the gospel this morning? We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. So recently I've um, 
through, through my good friend John Pauling, gotten pretty into podcasts, and it's led me on the rabbit trail of podcasts. And the most recent one that I've gotten into is one called Mogul. It's about the life and death of this hip-hop really legend named Chris Lighty, who basically, he was the guy that like, discovered Warren G back in the day, which is, I think, really impressive. But then he also is a guy who represented huge, huge artists, everyone from like Missy Elliott to Tribe Called Quest to Buster Rhymes to 50 Cent was his kind of latest uh, big name that what he represented. But his life came to a tragic end when he took his own life on August 30th, 2012. And the fascinating part of this podcast is not just the backstory and kind of looking into the life of this legend, this hip-hop legend, Chris Lighty, but when the podcast got to this part about talking about his depression and talking about his anxiety, you could tell there was this fascinating conversation that happened, which was this, that hip-hop for the longest time had no idea what to do with depression or anxiety. Like no one, it was such a culture full of, you know, such sort of um, boasting and such confidence that no one ever mentioned the weakness that they might have been feeling. And thankfully that started to change recently. So you can think about rappers these days like Kendrick Lamar, who in his song You really starts to face it. Here's what he says in his song You. He says, I know your secrets, mood swings is frequent. I know depression is resting on your heart for two reasons. You the reason why mama and them leaving. You say you love them. I know you don't mean it. I know you're irresponsible, selfish, and denial can't help it. Your trials and tribulations a burden. Everyone felt it. And he's starting to give voice and shape to the things that we feel. Just living as fallen human beings in a fallen world. But here's my point. If hip-hop for forever didn't really know what to do with depression or anxiety or really just feelings of sadness, I think the church maybe even less so does. You know, is it possible, you know, we sang from the earliest ages, at least I did, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. What? Down in my heart. What? Is it possible for someone with that joy, 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 joy down in your heart to get so sad that you cry your eyes out because you're so bitterly disappointed at the way the Lord is working or not working in your life? Is it possible for a Christian, a genuine Christian, to feel so anxious and so out of control that they feel helpless and hopeless and praise the Lord that Psalm 42 says yes? Yes, Christians get depressed and anxious too. And Psalm 42 is this gift to us, right? It's a lament psalm, which I've mentioned, which just simply means it's a psalmist, really in this case, the sons of Korah, trying to give shape and, and voice to what it feels like and what it looks like to take your sadness, to take your heaviness, to take your depression, to take your anxiety to the Lord. And what I love is that long before you know, artists like Kendrick, here, were, here was this super group called the sons of Korah, who were giving who are writing songs about what it felt like and looks like to take your sadness and heaviness to the Lord. Now, let me say this as kind of an important distinction before I dive in, because that's what I want to talk about this morning. What does Psalm 42 give us or tell us about what we do with our sadness, what we do with our depression and our anxiety? But here's an important distinction off the bat that I just want to make. Some of us in this room, myself included, struggle, when I say words like depression or anxiety, we struggle more in the clinical side of that which means through often, very often, no fault of our own, we get very, very depressed or very, very anxious. And the key word there is through, or the key phrase is through no fault of our own. Through whatever reason, be it genes, be it constitutional emotional makeup, I don't know, like in my life, I'm not exactly sure. I can look to my great, great, great grandfather, you know, I can see the like trace, like I didn't have a chance. When I look at my family lines, I'm like, the fact that I'm here is great. Um, But for... That's not all of us, though. Maybe more of us in this room, 
we're not on the clinical side, but can I just say this? Because we live as fallen human beings in a fallen world, you're going to experience what Psalm 42 is talking about if you haven't at some point in your life. It's what we could simply call circumstantial or situational depression or anxiety through some loss, through some tragedy, through some just experience in your life that is devastating. And so I really want to get all of us together and just look at what Psalm 42 has for us. And the way I want to do that is to talk about really just three things. First, Psalm 42 tells us how it feels, what depression and anxiety feel like. Second, it tells us a little bit about where it comes from in surprising ways. And then lastly, we get a chance to see what in the world we can do with it. And it's really kind of, we could break it down like this, two verses with a chorus is really the way we're going to do this. How it feels, where it comes from, and then the chorus is, what do we do with it or what can we do with it? So first thing with me for a little bit about how it feels Part of how you know the, whoever's writing this is depressed is they give seven vivid images about what it feels like. If there's anything, and I think I can say this for my fellow depressed people that we're good at, it is drama. It is being vivid about, the, about sadness. And this psalmist really is. Look at these seven. We're not going to look at them for long, but just trace with me these seven really vivid descriptions and images he gives about what it feels like. Here's the first one in verses 1 and 2. It feels like dying of thirst. Here's the second one in verse 3. It feels like a buffet of tears. This is the worst buff- worse than Golden Corral, right? A buffet where you're just eating, you, you, you are just crying your eyes out. The third image we get from verse 3 and verse 10 is it feels like having your inner critic and your inner cynic on a loop. Just constantly, that was what the Kendrick song was getting at, just constantly beating yourself up and telling yourself how bad you are. In this case, it was the, the voice of his enemies, their enemies. But often in our case, we can be our own worst enemy. The fourth image, it feels like being emptied out like a leftover drink from a party the night before, in verse 4. The fifth image it gives, and again in verse 4, is it's like having a memory, a nostalgia but, but only for the sad and tragic things. Number six, the sixth image he gives in verse seven, it feels like drowning in the ocean. Can we just stop here for a second? Because I think sometimes, like for the longest time, I would sing praise songs about God's waves washing over us like it was a good thing. Can we just say some Psalm, Psalm 42? Like he's talking about feeling crushed. Like this isn't this isn't something we Hillsong can do. This is something about <laughs> saying I feel like I am drowning. Your waves are your breakers. They they roar at me. He feels so disoriented. Is what he's trying to say. And then verse seven or the seventh image in verse ten is he says, and I think this is the the most interesting one. It feels like a fatal wound in my bones. How do you heal a wound? In your bones. He's saying that's how deep it's cutting through me. This heaviness, this sadness, this hopelessness. Uh, one of my favorite scenes in all of literature, but especially in David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest, is a scene with this character named Kate Gompert. And it takes place, she's tried to uh, hurt herself for like the umpteenth time, and she's waiting in the psych ward in the room, and a young doctor is coming to see her. And she's trying to get this young doctor to understand what her struggle feels like. And here's how the conversation goes. Here's what she says to him. I think it gets at, beautifully gets at, uh, really what it feels like. Here's what she says. She says, no matter what I do, 
She's talking about depression in her case. No matter what I do, it gets worse and worse. It's there more and more. This filter drops down and the feeling makes the fear of the feeling way worse. And after a couple weeks, it's there all the time, the feeling. And I'm totally inside it. I'm in it and everything has to pass through it to get in. And I don't want to smoke and I don't want to work or go out or read or watch TV or go out or stay in or either do anything or not do anything. I don't want anything except for the feeling to go away. But it doesn't. Part of the feeling, she's trying to get him to understand, she says, part of the feeling is being like willing to do anything to make it go away. Understand that, anything. Do you understand? And this is the line that I love. It's not wanting to hurt myself. It's wanting to not hurt. It's not wanting to hurt myself. It's wanting to not hurt. In Psalm 42, the, the psalmist is saying that. If we could take those seven images and just give it one word, we, could, we, we would just give it the word hopeless. The, the psalmist feels absolutely hopeless about himself. He feels hopeless about his friends, his community. He feels hopeless about life and the way it's gone. And he feels hopeless, even we see, about God and God's ability or desire to do anything or help him in this situation. And can we just stop for a second and say, this, God gave us this psalm because he knows this is often how we feel. He knows this is often how life goes. And can we just take a moment and not try to do the things that we often do as Christians, which is either be stoic about these kind of emotions and pretend like they're not really there and just push through them, or just to be so uh, sort of glib about them that we've just we fly through them to the other side of victory and we, the other side of healing. Can we just sit in them for a moment? Can I say, this is what we as a church are not good at, sitting with people, sitting even in these feelings. And if we're going to get to the part where we, how do we begin to take them to the Lord? Absolutely. But can we for a moment just feel what Psalm 42 is asking us to feel? That sometimes we do feel that it's not wanting to hurt myself, it's wanting to not hurt. So where does it come from? Where do these feelings come from? This is where I think it's interesting. In Psalm 42, he gives us really, I think, three different areas that these feelings, depression and anxiety, are rooted in. Three different areas that they're rooted in. First, he talks about this emotional component. Uh, What's interesting about this psalm is he's most likely writing this from exile. When enemies literally came and took God's people and took them to Babylon, he's in a strange place. He's living as a prisoner in a strange land. And he's lost something. That's why he talks about it. I remember when I would lead God's people to worship and we would sing shouts of joy and now that's gone. I remember the comforts of my home that I love and now that's gone. He's talking about the emotional devastation of loss. And we can relate. Sometimes it's, simply, it's as simple as we move or a friend moves. More often it's as hard as a friend dies or a loved one dies. Or often there's loss. Loss is a huge, huge trigger for depression and anxiety. I was recently reading, I didn't realize this about Teddy Roosevelt. I'm not a history guy per se, but I was fascinated. My wife for Christmas did the classic spouse thing where it's like you don't know what to give your spouse, so you find something and give it to them. So she gave me a biography of Teddy Roosevelt, and I was like, oh, thank you. I've been really uh, hoping for this one. Um, but I was thumbing through it recently, um, and I didn't. Maybe you know the story, but Teddy Roosevelt, in uh, really Valentine's Day, February fourteenth, eighteen eighty four, in a span of eleven hours apart, he lost his mom. They were living in the same house. He lost his mom and his wife, and like eleven hours apart. 
And in the days after that, he wrote this in his journal, the light has gone out of my life. For joy or sorrow, my life has now been lived out. He got so deeply depressed. He ended up, this is interesting to me, he ended up literally going to live as a cowboy in one of the Dakotas and just to kind of get away and get, get his sanity back. We sometimes get depressed and anxious through the losses in our lives that we feel. But then he gives another component. He says not only there's, uh, there's this emotional component, but there's also a physical component. What's fascinating about Psalm 42, and this is where the question is, am I depressed or anxious because of the choices I'm making? Or This is the question I've always asked myself. Am I depressed and anxious because of the choices I'm making, or am I making said choices because I'm depressed and anxious? And I think we can say, yeah. It's this cycle that works together. But there's something he's talking about in his physical life that's out of order. This disorder. He talks about his sleeping patterns being deeply disturbed. He talks about not, if we take him literally, not eating anything. He's nowhere near functioning within the physical limits of creation in the ways that God intended us to flourish and to live well. This is why I love one of my favorite stories in all the scriptures when God meets Elijah in King, 1 Kings 19. Remember, Elijah's gotten so depressed about the way things have just gone down with the idolaters that they're messing with. And you know, even though he kind of won the victory, he's deeply, deeply depressed. He goes into the cave. Do you remember this? And he really is on the verge of wanting his life. He actually prays for the Lord to end his life. And do you remember what God does when he meets him? He doesn't show up and give him a John Piper book. He shows up and he feeds him. And then he lets, like, he puts him into a deep sleep. He cares for him physically. I love that. There's a physical component. But there's also a spiritual component, right? Uh, we tell through this psalm he's struggling to be on speaking terms with God. He has to actually do the thing. And this is where Martin Lloyd-Jones is so genius. He actually, Lloyd-Jones says he takes himself in hand and he begins speaking the truth of the gospel to himself. But he's so spiritually discouraged, he's so spiritually hopeless in some ways, that his only kind of way to do that is to try to take himself in hand and remind him of who God is and remind himself of what God is, has done for him and who he is to him. Now here's the important point. Our temptation as Christians is to want to root depression and anxiety in one of these things, not in all three. And typically you can guess the one we go for the spiritual one, right? You're depressed and anxious because you're not believing the gospel enough. If you just believe the gospel enough, don't you understand you wouldn't need Lexapro? Can, we, can I just say no? Um, the, the story from my life that really drives us home is I was in Statesboro, Georgia, doing REF at Georgia Southern, and I was going to see a counselor who, looking back, was, was not a great counselor in, in a lot of ways. Partly because we would meet at Ruby Tuesday, which when I think about that period of depression, I remember this one, we're at Ruby Tuesday, and I'm trying to open up to him about my struggle. I was struggling for the first time in ministry really, really badly with depression, and I was trying to talk to him about it across the table at Ruby Tuesday. And I remember him saying, he stopped me and said, here's what I believe about depression. Like I was just trying to share, he's like, let me me tell you what I think. He's like, "I, I believe that depression is always rooted in sin because... That way, I know that I can just repent of my sin, and then my depression is, will go away. And I was like, oh. I mean, I, that was the only moment in my life where I wanted to take a fork and just across the table. Um, but can we say that this is not the, the image or the picture that Psalm 42 paints? 
it's a, you can't, we can't treat something that scripture treats so complexly or such complexity and just try to oversimplify, right? It's rooted in deep things. It's good for us to try to explore. There are often times where it can be one of those areas more than others, absolutely. But it's good for us to treat this with comple- the same complexity that scripture does. I love the way that Lloyd-Jones in his book in this psalm uh, spiritual depression, he says this, many Christian people, in fact, are in utter ignorance concerning this realm where the borderlines between the physical, psychological, and spiritual meet. Frequently, I have found that such church leaders had treated those whose trouble was obviously mainly physical or psychological in a purely spiritual manner. And here's what Lloyd-Jones would say. And if you do so, you not only don't help, you aggravate the problem. So what can we do about it? This is the, where we get to the chorus. And like any good Coldplay song or any good song, the key is in the refrain found in verses 5 and 11. And it really has two parts. He's telling himself to hope in God. So I think what we have is a story of misplaced hope and the way that leads us to depression and anxiety. And then finding our hope or putting our hope in the right place, which is in God alone. And this is what a part, part of what it means to be human, part of what it means to be a sinner, is that we are constantly placing our hope or putting our hope in things that cannot hold our hope. Right? Think about I think about my own life. Putting our hope in a relationship that was never meant never meant to be the kind of hope that God could be and then experiencing the devastation of a breakup and the loss of that hope. Putting our hope in a career where we long to be or do something and use our gifts in a certain way and then we lose that job or we, God takes us a different direction and we, lose, we get depressed and anxious. Or putting our hope in, in changing the world or in ambition or even in certain relationships and we realize that when we lose them, we lose our hope. Or even putting our hope in being in control. That if I can just control my kids, if I can just control my home, then I will finally be happy and our kids don't respond well, and our home is a wreck, and we feel hopeless. And he's saying, don't put your hope in things that can't hold them. Put your hope in God. Put your hope in the God who loves you, and he calls him my salvation and my God. That's, the, I think, the part of the, the answer from Psalm 42 of what do we do with depression or anxiety is that we... In, <laughs> The way to learn to live well with them is to continue to put our hope again and again in the God who is our salvation and our God. Um, But when I have students come to me and say, well, what do I do practically with my depression or anxiety? Do I go see my doctor? Do I go see my counselor? Do I go see my pastor? And I want to say yes. Why? Because doctors help us find hope for ourselves physically. That often can include medicine. Again, God with Elijah in, in 1 Kings 19, we need to take ourselves and help find people who can take ourselves and understand ourselves physically. Counselors help us find hope for ourselves emotionally. We need people. I need people who can help us make sense of our pasts and our presents. The ways that we've been victim and villain, the ways we've been sinned against and the ways that we've sinned. We need people who can sit with us and help us process our story and then, of course, your pastor and your, your it's not just your pastor, your, your friends that point you to Jesus can give you that hope spiritually. They can do what the sons of Korah are inviting you to do. Hope in God, your salvation and your God. What's fascinating to me about Psalm 42 is the sons of Korah really do, they, they had a glimpse, they had their a grasp on just a shadow and a sketch of the way that God was going to bring hope into this world. 
right? They knew their hope was in what God has, had done and was going to do for his people. They knew that. They, they trusted in that. But they have a fuller picture now, a picture that we have a better grasp of, of exactly what, who the face of that hope is in the Lord Jesus. They know it now and they see it now more fully than they did before. And what I love about the Psalms, and especially this Psalm, is not just the beautiful thing that I hope that you felt at some of this morning where God is giving us words. It's what Calvin, when he looked at the Psalms, he said they're like the anatomy of the soul because we find voice and shape for all of our emotions in the Psalms. I love that. about They are a gift to us. that God cares for us. He knows us and he cares for us. But one of the things that I love even more is to think about the historical fact that Jesus sang the Psalms. Jesus grew up as a, as a faithful, in a faithful Jewish home, singing the Psalms, no doubt around the table in the home. We know there are places like at the, la- at the Last Supper where he's singing certain Psalms with his disciples. And we know too that even when he's on the cross, he's singing the Psalms. That's why he gets to Psalm 22 and he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's sing- What's he doing? He's not, can we just say, he's not just reciting scripture. He's singing the Psalms. I love, there's a fascinating article by Scott Ed Clowney called The Singing Savior where he talks about this. That Jesus sings the songs. He knows songs of joy. He sings songs of joy. But what we need to hear this morning is he also knows songs and sings songs of sadness. He knows his own song. He has his own songs of sadness, but he knows and can sing your songs too. And when I think about Jesus on the cross, as he gets to Psalm 22, was he singing all the lament psalms? Did he get to Psalm 42? Um, Jesus knows and sings the songs of our depression and anxiety and their healing even now. I'll close with this. There's a, I recently read a book that got at this idea for me. It's called My Name is Asher Love by Chaim uh, Potok. I don't know how to say his name, but let's go with that. And it's a story of young Asher Love who grows up in this very intensely religious, Hasidic Jewish home. His father actually works for the rabbi, goes around the world. And, and Asher, from a really young age, learns that he has this gift of painting. You can imagine his father, as this extremely um, faithful, strict Hasidic Jew, has no value for art, really. So you kind of see this tension building, right? That Asher, he has this gift. He thinks it's from the Lord. What does he do with it? He experiences part of what, as he discovers his gift, he has a particular um, skill to capture the the sadness of the world and the brokenness of the world. And as he lives with a mother whose husband is gone all the time, with a mother who loses a brother in this devastating way, and he sees his mom be so sad. As he continues to grow and develop as an artist, he has this moment where he wants to paint and capture the sadness that he felt in his family. And so as a Hasidic Jew, the image that he sees that he can't get out of his mind is the image of Jesus and the cross, the crucifixion. And as the book builds, he's, he's become this famous, worldwide famous artist, and he's having this show in Brooklyn, and he's painted these two pieces he wish he could take back now called uh, Crucifixion 1 and 2. And what they are, as his parents show up to the show, he's trying to, to keep them from these paintings because as they get to the paintings, they realize in devastation and horror what they are. And as Asher has painted uh, their room, their living room, he's done their living room window in the shape of a cross and he's put his mom on it. 
And here's what he said to his mom as, he, as his parents were devastated and left in anger. Here's what he said. He says, she knew there was something in the gallery, talking about his mom, that was afraid to have them see. Mama, it's a crucifixion. I made our living room window into a crucifix, and I put you on it to show the world about your waiting, your fears, your anguish. Do you understand, Mama? And do you see what he's saying? He's saying, my religion, my faith, didn't have an image to, to hold my sadness. And he was drawn to the cross. Why? Because Jesus is the only God that you and I have ever heard of or known that knows what to do with our sadness, that knows what to do with our suffering, that knows what to do with our pain. The good news of this morning, as I close, isn't, isn't just that Christians get depressed and anxious too, and it's okay. That's good news. The good news isn't just that we have a Savior who knows and sings sad songs, his and ours, by heart. That's good news. But I think the even better news is the way he sings it. Is that we have a, a singing Savior whose voice would make Otis, think about your Otis Redding, Ella Fitzgerald, unsoothing compared to his voice. And and the way the picture that we get of what he's like as he sings is Isaiah 42, 3, where it says about Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, and faithfulness he will bring forth justice. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, uh, give us hope in who you are for us. Uh, Don't let us put our hope anywhere else, Lord, but let us put our hope even as we've, some of us are, are sitting in sadness and suffering that is unexplainable, would you still help us to put our hope in you, the only one who knows what to do with our sadness? We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen.